Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Today, we have a great guest for you. It's Kirsten Liston. Um, And before we launch into the interview with Kirsten, I just wanted to share with you, I'm really excited. The Corporate Compliance Insights website has um, revamped the Great Woman in Compliance uh, landing page. So you can listen to our episodes on the website, as well as um, learn a little bit more about Lisa and myself, where the podcast came from. And additionally, on Corporate Compliance Insights, you'll find a lot of good news and stories to do with compliance. So I'd love to welcome Kirsten to today's show. Um, I understand that you're a journalist by training. Tell us more about your background. Yeah, Mary, thank you so much for having me on. Um, That's right. Um, I started my career as a journalist. I was always one of those, you know, kids who always had a book. I was a huge reader. I was an English major. Um, And when I got out of college, I thought, you know, I'm never going to, you know, looking forward a couple years in life, I'm never again not going to have a mortgage, a car payment, you know, all the the things you accumulate in your adult life. And I thought, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to try and be a writer. Um, And so I spent five years in the Minneapolis area really paying my dues. It was the mid-90s and the way you got into journalism was you interned. So my very first internship was an awesome publication called Minnesota Law and Politics. Funny, because I wound up writing a lot about a lot of legal issues. I worked mm-hmm. for Family Handyman. I worked for a magazine called City Pages, which was owned by the Village Voice, where I was a calendar editor. Uh, it was it was great. It was a great role for when you're you know 24, mm-hmm. 25, 26, because I was writing cover stories. I was writing film reviews. I got to go out to Los Angeles for junkets. I was writing about the arts. Um, but ultimately, the paper wasn't really a fit for me. I kind of looked around, and there were so many talented people, but kind of the lifestyle and what they cared about, uh, well, it wasn't a match for me. I wasn't ever going to become kind of a great champion journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started networking, and a friend of mine from college had gotten a job in Boston with this little company that was you know, trying to take the world by storm by putting compliance training online, um, and they liked the fact that I had a legal writing background. Uh, they liked the, fa- the fact that I was used to a weekly deadline, and so in two I joined Integrity Interactive in Boston, and I've been in the industry ever since. Oh, great. Awesome. Yeah. Kirsten, um, you've recently had a huge accomplishment. Congratulations on the publication of your first book, which is called Creating Great Compliance Training in a Digital World. Um, One of your um, very first points that you make in the book is essentially that no one feels like they have time to pay attention to materials created by others. And I would add that probably goes double for compliance training. As a journalist, um, one of your key skills is for hooking um, readers in right from the start. And in the case of compliance training learners, what are your ideas for ensuring that you really capture the attention of um, your compliance audience right at the start of training? 
Yeah, right at the start of training. Yeah, so at this point, I've been created. I've been creating compliance training in some form or another for about 19 years, and so hundreds of times in my career now, I've sat down with a group of people who are getting ready to create some training, um, either customize it or create it from scratch, and kind of start with you know. And, and what I notice about compliance lawyers and compliance professionals is they always want to start with what do we have to tell people, right? And there's a reason for that. It's because there's so much content to convey and compliance, you know, and I know we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about how to make compliance training compelling, um, but getting across the substance of compliance can, can be at odds a little bit with kind of, you know, the practice of taglines and, and making, it, making it short and sweet and compelling. But so anyway, as a compliance attorney, people are always thinking about, gosh, I know so much about antitrust or I know so much about bribery and I just want to tell people. Um, and that's an important part of it. But one of the things that I say in the book and one of the things I've observed in practice Practices, it's actually important to kind of step back and go a couple paces before that and start with your audience. You know, start with who am I trying to reach? What do they care about? What do they care about related to this topic? Have they heard about it before? Have they heard about it so much that they're sick of it? Is this new information for them? And then really try to dig into why would someone find this interesting? And it's a, it's a funny question to ask yourself because at a first glance, you would say, why would someone find antitrust training interesting? Who would, right? Um, that's kind of the, like, who on their own would seek this out? Well, you know, at a dry legal level, probably nobody. But when you go one level deeper, you know, antitrust issues, compliance issues, bribery issues, they're all human issues. They're all humans making choices. Um, and they're humans in real-life situations who are, you know, they usually have a goal. They're weighing the pros and cons of things. These things really matter, um, but not at usually not at the level that you're sitting down in a room and saying, what should we put in the antitrust training? So my biggest piece of advice is to really get to who are you talking to, what matters to them, what moves them, and what about this topic in particular should resonate with them? You know, where is their useful advice? Where is their surprising information? Where is there something that's even going to, you know, make them feel something emotionally? And then start there. Start with your audience. Uh, don't start with what you want to tell. Great tip. And, and um, Kirsten, I think I might, if, if I may, leverage off um, some of your skills and um, see if I can get some further tips um, on how to be a better writer. One yeah. of the um, biggest crimes against writing that I indulge in, and I'm, I'm self-aware about it, um, is run-on sentences. And mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. um, I kind of write how I speak. So I'm an mm -hmm. okay public speaker, but only really a, an adequate writer because yeah. public speaking, the way I speak is okay. Um, but when you try and put that on paper, it, it isn't great. Um, and what happens is that there's sort of lots of commas going on and mm -hmm. I just have minimum three-line sentences. And my yeah. way of sort of trying to deal with that is to just look at the sentence and go, oh, better, better put some, uh, break, break that up into more sentences. So I'll put in a period or a full stop if you're from my corner of the world and, right. um, and just break it up and make it sort of... Um, make those clauses into separate sentences. What else can I do just to, to make sure that I'm addressing that type of issue, which of course we don't really want. It doesn't make life easier for our constituents who are trying to read our compliance advice when they get these um, horrible, horribly written emails. Um, yeah. What advice for me? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll say what you're describing, and I find this with so many compliance practitioners, we almost have the drawback of being able to hold so much information in our head that what seems like a simple point to us is almost, you know, is often three sentences long, right? And so how do you take the stuff that to us seems like, well, I have to tell them this, I have to tell them this, I have to tell them this. And before you know it, it's 750 words, right? And three, four line sentences, that kind of thing. What I would say is go ahead and write it out the way that you would write first, because that's what makes sense to you and it gets it out of your head, but then don't stop there. Take a look at it on paper. Um, and there's this great, uh, there's this great website called Copy Blogger where they talk about most people today on the web don't really read, they scan. And so, uh, there are great posts on Copy Blogger and they're easy to find just by, you know, kind of searching on keywords that you would look for. Um, I think it's like eight ways to make more compelling content or something like this. But, you know, write it out first. And then start looking at, hmm, could I put in any subheads? Sometimes an email, because like you, I can do a big brain dump. Sometimes I'll go back over my emails and put in subheads that are bolded, right? Mm -hmm. So could I put in subheads mm -hmm. to kind of break this up so someone can find their way? Could, can I change my paragraph into bullets? If I were rewriting this into bullets, what would it look like? Um, mm -hmm. Can I change anything into a bulleted list? Is there any place where I can introduce a line break? Um, and then also the way that, you know, the modern web writes today, it's very short paragraphs because, again, you know, they've done these studies and on mm -hmm. the web, and I think increasingly in magazines and any kind of printed material, um, people skim rather than read. And so give them, give them anchors to skim too. Like I said, put mm -hmm in subtitles, put in bulleted lists, and then see if you can make your paragraphs like uh, one sentence or two sentences long. And sometimes just the exact same words you wrote, but introducing more breaks and headings and white space helps people navigate it a little bit better. Okay, that's that's awesome. That's a really great um, starting point, and I'll certainly look into that further. And it most definitely adds to my arsenal of one technique of, of just um, slapping in uh, full stops um, here and there. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is a good technique, and then there's more to do for variation. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for that. And um, Kirsten, for our um, our listeners who um, have have heard. Um, many of our episodes, um, you might be curious as to um, why we're doing training again today when uh, not so long ago um, we touched on the subject with Courtney Sander in a previous post, but in that one we focus more on current trends and operationalizing training. And today Kirsten and I are going to take a deeper dive into some of the long-held beliefs um, that some in the field are clutching onto, which is kind of similar to how I felt, actually, honestly, like, to be completely open, um, how I do still feel about BlackBerry devices um, and holding onto this analogy, I believe that the old ways of training will eventually be phased out, much like my beloved BlackBerry <laughs> phones <laughs> in the past. Um, I think some of your philosophies on what makes effective compliance training make excellent arguments for practitioners dealing with peers and supervisors who subscribe to the yeah. traditional approach to training yeah. is what I consider to be an effective approach. So let's work through some of the elements um, of the traditional requirements of training that you've covered in your book and um, why they won't lead compliance officers on a path to success. Right. Yeah, so, sounds great. Yep. So let's talk about legalese-driven language being the only way to go, um, making materials that appear to have been written by lawyers for lawyers, probably lots of run-on sentences if I've had anything to do with it. Because um, yeah. after all, compliance is a serious topic, right? 
Kristen, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts about very formal drafting of compliance training. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say formal legalese drafting is kind of the comfort zone for lawyers, right? There's that old saying, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM. And like, if you put in literally everything and the kitchen sink, who can say that you did a bad job, right? Like, look, it's all there. I thought of, I thought of every caveat. Um, and, and lawyers are really trained in that mindset, you know, and, and especially in contracts, you want that. You know, you want a lawyer to try and look down the road and think about everything that could happen and have it all there in black and white and in writing. Um, and as a lawyer, I think, or as, co- or as compliance practitioners, people feel a sense of comfort with everything that's in there. Um, mm. The only problem with that is most normal humans don't want to go anywhere near that kind of language, right? And, you know, and, and where we're, I think you and I have been talking about here, our, our kind of common sense and intuition is saying, this really isn't the best way to reach people. Mm-hmm. And as a profession, I think we've been helped in that by some of the Department of Justice guidance that that has come out that is really making clear, you know, it's not about just proving on paper that you did that, which is what a contract is. It's proving on paper that you agreed to something, right? But it's not about proving on paper anymore that you did it. It's finding ways to demonstrate you really reached your audience. Um, and I don't think there's anybody out there who could give somebody this super formal, super legalistic document and then give some kind of employee engagement survey and come out with high marks, you know, like, oh, that, that really got them. That really stuck with them. Um, and that's the issue our compliance profession is grappling with. If, mm-hmm. if super legal language is no longer kind of the safe zone, what is and where do we go from here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm very much with you on that. And um, a way that I have tried to address this um, is, in, uh, I think Matt used the term for your writing of um, staccato um, mm. styles, which is kind of those, you know, nice and quick and sort of almost dancing along the page types of sentences. Mm-hmm. Keeping mm-hmm. Your sentences brief and, and concise. And um, I, I think certainly if you have run-on sentence issues, um, but just keeping in mind that what you're going for really is a sentence of less than 10 words a lot of the time. I find that helpful. Yeah. Um, and what yeah. I find helpful is thinking about speaking in a conversational tone, right? Because I naturally mm-hmm. write how I speak. So I'll yeah. start off compliance training training with things like, um, right, so where do we begin? Um, you know, and, and yeah. that on a PowerPoint slide. Um, because it's just, I think, uh, less threatening and less intimidating than yeah. if you start out with, you know, a few Latin terms thrown in for good measure um, mm-hmm. and referencing a, a legal textbook. Yeah. Yeah, what I love about what you just said is that's how a human would talk. And quite frankly, we respond to more human-sounding language. You know, we respond when it sounds like there's somebody talking to us versus when it's this kind of like faceless, you know, contract language edict that's coming down or whatever. So I, I bet people respond really well when you say that, like, right, so where should we begin? That's, you know, it's, it's the way a human would say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my um, second element that I wanted to... Um, to, to chat with you about is so in order to be sufficiently comprehensive and really teach the learner everything they need to know, compliance training should be at least an hour long to view or read. Yeah. Kirsten, is this a myth you want to debunk or a statement you would espouse? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can probably guess where I fall, but I would say, <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say I'd like to debunk it. But what's funny is, 
a lot of the same companies, and again, we're talking about staying in a comfort zone, right? If you've given somebody an hour-long, really detailed antitrust course, you mm-hmm. can feel safe, like like mm-hmm. I've prepared them. It was yeah. all in there. If yeah. they didn't get it, it's, it's their fault, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what's funny is, you know, I've made antitrust courses for big brands, let's say, mm-hmm. big consumer brands everybody's mm-hmm. heard of, right? They they advertise uh, at the Super Bowl, you see their commercials on American Idol, and what's so funny is when it comes to advertising their own product, those same brands take a different approach, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, if you take, for instance, like a soft drink, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a, a soft drink maker like Coca-Cola or Pepsi, they don't run a one-hour uh, commercial in January every year where they spend an hour telling you why their soft drink is so important and why it's better mm-hmm. than the others and then never get back to you again. The way that they build their brand is mm-hmm. through short interesting, compelling, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's cute, like the polar bear. Sometimes it's Mm -hmm. funny. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's cheeky, but it's all really designed for kind of maximum audience engagement. When, Mm -hmm. when they make commercials, they're thinking, how do we get people's attention? What will get them to look at us? What will get them to remember us so that down the road, when they sit down at a restaurant and order a soft drink, they choose ours. Um, And when they do that, they don't go for hour long things. Now, I agree. Compliance has to be substantive. There are points you have to get across that are more than just our soft drink is great, right? Um, or this mm-hmm. car will make you feel amazing or whatever. Um, but, but when you look at when brands really need humans to do something, uh, one hour training is not the direction they go in. So how can we learn from the directions they do go in? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a really great um, example there and, and one that everyone can relate to. So um, if, I, if I were to explain it, I guess, in, in my thoughts, and you can let me know if it's it's on the same track, I yeah. like to think of things like annual training as mm-hmm. being, um, I, I, to, to, to use one of your words from earlier, almost like an anchor training. So that's like setting yeah. um, a baseline for some good general topics that um, largely everyone needs to know about. But you have an opportunity for another 364 days of the year to do... Yeah specialized training to do communication bursts that have an educational spin to them. So when someone relies very heavily on like a a one hour plus um, annual training, and then as you sort of say, and then, you know, walks away and doesn't do anything else. um, I think that's the opposite of effective, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The problem is, is that you give this one off thing, how much are people actually retaining from that session compared with your shorter bursts? Right. So I think that's, right? yeah, but is it about what you think as well, like a similar approach? Yeah. And, you know, one of the big influences in my thinking here is that uh, in the summer of 2015, I got involved with one of one of our first customers was uh, actually not a, a company who wanted to do compliance training, but a company mm-hmm. that was establishing itself to do cybersecurity training. So they mm-hmm. hired us to kind of design their product strategy. And when you look at the government's guidance on what makes for, for good cybersecurity mm-hmm. training, which was published way back in 2003, they wow. kind of, they kind of, right? Yeah. It's, it's the, NIST guidance, and then there was yeah. updated guidance. I, I forget now the date that it was updated, mm-hmm. maybe I think around 2015, but it pointed back to the 2003 guidance for training, and it basically grouped things into three buckets, and they kind of mm-hmm. said there's a small group of people who are going to need in-depth skills training, and those are your IT people, or you know, within, mm-hmm. a, within sure. a company, that's your antitrust professionals yeah. or your compliance yeah. professionals. They, they need a deep level of knowledge, and they said mm-hmm. everybody else needs basic literacy, and then they need awareness. Um, and mm-hmm. so when you think about your annual training, it's, it's a way to, number one, 
give people basic literacy. Number mm-hmm. two, establish why they should care. And then, right. like you said, you you have 364 more days in the year to mm-hmm. remind them of what of what you kind of anchored. You know, you do that anchor to say, look, let's just put a line in the sand. This is what you need. Like our company is committed to integrity. This really matters to us. And here are some areas you really need to know about. And here's why mm-hmm. it matters. Here's why it matters to you. And then, yeah, you have the rest of the year to remind them or build on that or refer back to that. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree with that way of thinking about it. Great. And then my third um, and final statement for you to consider, annual compliance training needs to cover every single risk area under the sun every year. Otherwise, we're leaving ourselves open to scrutiny from regulators. Yeah, your nay, Kristen. Kristen. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. No, it's one of those things where, again, we're thinking about safety and being risk averse. And if you're trying to be safe and be risk averse, you would train everybody on everything all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just not practical or realistic. You know, in the same way that if you were trying to be super effective, you would, you know, have a million different roles based training or have different training for each geography. And, you know, in the kind of companies we're talking about that have tens or even hundreds of thousands of employees, that's not practical. And so the mm-hmm. compliance program you can put in place mm-hmm. is way is way better than the perfect one you can't implement. And from everything yeah. I've read, I mean, listen, it's, it's uh, regulators have discretion, prosecutors and judges have discretion. So you can never say for sure, um, this is the right way to do it and you'll always be safe. Um, but, for, but my understanding of good compliance practice is that if you have uh, kind of sincerely and genuinely work through all the steps, right? You've done a risk assessment. You've put a good code in place. You have your policies and procedures. You've done training and awareness. You know, you monitor for stuff. There's a place to report. You respond to reports. And then you look at how effective everything was, look at improving effectiveness and do it all over again. As long as you have that in place, my understanding is, you know, if let's say... Um, on your risk assessment, you know, number 15 was insider trading, and then you have a massive insider trading problem. It mm-hmm. seems to me that you can very credibly say, like, look, w- you know, we're not psychic. We can't foresee everything. Um, mm-hmm. But this was how we thought about things. This was our, right. this was our framework. This was our structure. Um, we, we tried, we, you know, we, we had a good faith attempt to uh, look into our risks. Here's why we believe that was right. Here's why we've addressed what we did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you can never say for sure that that's a get out of jail free ticket, but it certainly is a very credible argument. Mm-hmm. I think so. And okay, obviously I am not a regulator um, nor yeah. authorized to speak on behalf of one, but the kind of um, observation that I've made um, over the last several years looking at particular in FCPA cases is that whenever um, a company, um, including their, their compliance function, has um, made a rational decision that made sense in the circumstances, they can point yeah. to uh, their rationale for doing so. They've never gotten into trouble for that. It always seems mm. to be companies get into trouble for realistically what feels like pretty n- like neglectful or... Um, yeah egregious um, mm-hmm. compliance issues. And yeah. um, of course, that, that could change in the future. And, and I'm obviously mm-hmm. not um, a, a governmental authority um, to, to rely on, but it has been my observation. Yeah, yeah. Good. I'm, I'm glad it aligns because, you know, honestly, we, we can never cancel out risk 100%, right? We're in the risk mitigation mm-hmm. business. Mm-hmm. And so you and I are both saying this seems a reasonable way to mitigate the risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Excellent. And then now I'm going to play devil's advocate and say, Mm -hmm. well, that sounds all well and good, but what about defensibility? How do we Mm -hmm. find the right balance between teaching enough so that people are understanding the risks they encounter and how they should approach their daily work to mitigate those risks versus droning on with excessive content that's not being absorbed or retained? Right, right, right. Because one can imagine the compliance industry going in a direction where we're like, it's all about short training. It's all about Mm -hmm. headlines. It's all about Mm -hmm. whatever. And one could imagine a company does that and genuinely does not educate their people. Right. right? It's too high level. It's too light touch. It's too everything else. Uh, As a side note, I've seen that, uh, I've seen that tendency in the world of codes of conduct, right? Codes Mm -hmm. went from, three-page documents to 70-page documents right. to now often something that feels more like a marketing brochure. But more than once, I've talked mm-hmm. to a client um, or a prospective client who said, hey, we're thinking about making like a, a three-page code. And to me, I, I say, I think that's too light. You know, in the same mm-hmm. way that with like safety training, there's a mm-hmm. there's a floor. You don't just give someone a hard hat and some principles like, hey, be careful in there. Stay away <laughs> from dangerous objects. You know, you, you do have to give some people a, a minimum of guidance. And so I think there's kind of a common sense test to say, am I really giving people the tools they need to do their job? Number one, Um, Mm -hmm. not just reacting out of people being sick of hearing from me, which is, (laughs) which can happen, you know? Um, But then also I think that the real, uh, the real answer to this is measurement. Um, Mm -hmm. Wei Chen and Eugene Soltes wrote a great article in the Harvard Business Review that I still refer back to all the time. I'm sure most people who are uh, Mm -hmm. listening to this podcast have heard of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they make the point that there's a lot of unnecessary um, stuff that goes on in compliance programs just because people are worried about defensibility, just because they like to be able to point to a a big pile of stuff and say, we did all this. You know, surely we must have done a good job. And, And they make the point that not all of that stuff is working, but the mm-hmm. only way to find out is to measure. And and I honestly think this mm-hmm. is something that our profession is grappling with. So how do you measure, right? How do you measure mm-hmm. people's knowledge? How do you measure their attitudes? How do you measure their behavior? And how do you how do you see if this stuff is is working? So as kind of the industry shifts to a new way of communicating, it has to go along with measurement and analytics. Mm. And so, Kirsten, you've got pretty good benchmarking oversight given that you're in a um, a consultancy uh, type role. What are some of the, um, I I don't want to use the word trending because it really shouldn't be about what's sort of popular right now, but you know what I'm I'm asking is, I guess, what's kind of cutting edge right now for measurement? Mm -hmm. What are you seeing companies Mm -hmm. implement um, as their um, metric for uh, learning whether or not their training is being absorbed retained um, a certain point of time further down the track and what their gaps might be. Totally. I'll, I'll say the, and, and it's going to be a funny kind of counterintuitive answer because every mm-hmm. people hear the words analytics or measurement and they mm-hmm. think about big schemes, but then they kind of yep. get stuck because we don't have big data in compliance, <laughs> or at least we haven't really discovered the big data. And mm-hmm. so in, in a really kind of counterintuitive way, mm-hmm. the most cutting edge clients that I work with um, or, or companies, sometimes they're mm-hmm. not clients, but I try to talk mm-hmm. to a lot of mm-hmm. them. Um, but, you know, the most cutting edge people are the ones who are just measuring it, it, with mm-hmm. whatever tool they have. And it's, it can be as simple as just include a survey at the end of the course. Yep. Or mm-hmm. um, Art Weiss, many years ago in my compliance academy, talked about every year they would give people a test a month before they did their annual training so they could see what mm. they remembered from a month ago. Mm-hmm. It's so simple, but mm-hmm. what a good measurement, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the, the most cutting... 
the majority of people, I think, are still trying to wrap their head around what does it mean to measure this? And it is a really big question, but the cutting edge ones are just saying, we're just going to use SurveyMonkey and survey a bunch mm-hmm. of managers and see what they think, mm-hmm. you know, or, or if we wonder about sales risk, we're just going to ask them. Um, I, I worked with Joe Murphy very early in my career and he would say, it's mm-hmm. amazing what employees will tell you if you just ask. Um, yeah. And it's it's funny, I was reminded of this. There was this great article in the Harvard Business Review about Facebook trying to decide uh, how long, like what kind of employee turnover they should plan for, right? They're kind of mm-hmm. doing retention planning. And so they hired this company and they did this multi-year big data study. And also at the same time, they just sent out a survey and asked people, how long do you think you'll be at Facebook? Um, and the survey was more <laughs> right on than the big multi-year, you know, multi-hundred thousand dollar engagement. So um, uh, it's yeah. a long way of saying, um, we're in the beginning of wrapping our heads around this. And I think over time, as we master it and there are more use cases, we'll become more and more sophisticated. But honestly, mm-hmm. the answer is just to start start with the tools you have available to you and um, try to answer the questions you already know that you have. Uh, and, to, and when you do that, you'll kind of be in the cutting edge of companies right now in the analytics and measurement area. Oh, that's super. And um, it does remind me of something I've written about recently, which is deploying your compliance week as a way um, to do gap analysis. So similarly, um, what I recommend companies can do um, is to uh, take your um, annual training content. um, And then when it comes to compliance week and you're doing activities, maybe you're making a Jeopardy game, maybe you're asking people quiz questions before they're given some kind of a ticket or an ability to play a game, Um, And then you can find out whether that information six months down the track has held Mm. um, or whether it hasn't. And then, as you say, you know, sometimes just asking. So um, we've put up as part of Compliance Week as well, like a feedback board, and it'll ask questions Mm. like, um, how can we help you better in the compliance department? If you were doing um, something specific about training, your board could be... um, what topics do you want more training on? Um, mm. And, and it, as you say, like, it's it's. And I think this has been a theme of this podcast as well, in terms of looking out for opportunities for yourselves. We, we've um, heard that from my boss Lisa Estrada in a previous episode. Um, if you want something, go out there, look for it, ask for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the worst they can do is not tell you. But what I've found is, as you've indicated, is that people will tell you, and mm-hmm. um, and they're more than happy to share. Um, so give yeah. them that that chances of, of a feedback mechanism. Oh, I love that idea. And as you were describing all that, I thought, wow. How interesting to think about Compliance Week as taking information in rather exactly. than putting information out. And could that exactly. even make your job easier? You know what I'm yeah. saying? So I love yes. that idea. Awesome. I'm pleased that you do. And um, we found it great. So basically, it's a two-way street. One is the ability to impart information in mm-hmm. um, sort of a more relaxed, casual environment where, of course, you're getting the other benefits of the outreach and advocacy um, and awareness that Compliance Week brings. Um, mm-hmm. But you're also getting something back in return and using it as a feedback mechanism for the compliance function. And people aren't feeling as kind of antsy about it as they would when mm-hmm. they're put on the spot. Put on the spot, I, I guess, is, is, is about how I describe it. When, yeah. you know, you're filling in an engagement survey or you're filling in a compliance feedback form. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a much lighter, sort of freer environment and people aren't sitting there feeling scrutinized and I, I feel like that means that they're in a better position um, right. to feel like they're going to be more free and frank with you right because mm-hmm. they know that you're mm-hmm. not sitting there judging them or marking them down 
um, yeah. on an exam, like you, you're right. out there playing games in that context. So I really recommend um, giving that a try to, to those mm. who are looking for a, a, a different way to, to maximize your compliance week. Some of you have been holding them for years. Um, they're relatively new for me. And so um, I'm still thinking about ways in which I can mix them up and things. But um, I hope that perspective of using it almost as a, a two-way street conversation piece um, might be a, a good novel idea for, for some who are in a bit of a rut. I love that. And what a great way to build trust with your audience and show that you care, right? Thank you. About, yeah. about what they get out of your compliance program. I love it. Awesome. Thanks, Kirsten. Well, thinking about your career now, um, um, I, I'm interested to, to get some um, thoughts from you about something that um, I think people want, a lot of people wonder about, and particularly women. Um, and I know that when um, uh, you were at another stage of your career, you were very critically thinking about um, what are the types of things that could be holding you back how do people respond to you? Um, and how could you be better gaining um, credibility and gravitas um, with your key yeah. stakeholders? And yeah. um, my understanding is that you struck upon um, the possibility of being too nice. And for mm -hmm. me, there's no such thing as too nice. But mm -hmm. I sometimes can see how that being someone's greatest strength could in fact also be perceived as their greatest weakness. What yeah. do you think, think um, about uh, that, that assessment of yourself um, and how did you move beyond, um, you know, thinking in that way to ensure that you um, improved um, how you were perceived by others um, at, as you tried to address your, I guess, your own feedback on yourself, yeah. that self-awareness? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good question. And I think it's something that's worth talking about publicly, you know, because mm -hmm. I think a lot of ambitious women kind of come up against this. And and mm -hmm. you're right to say being nice is not necessarily a weakness. And mm -hmm. in fact, if you read a lot of executive development yeah. for mm -hmm. well, it's generic executive development, although I mm -hmm. would say a lot of times mm -hmm. it's probably aimed at men, a lot of it is like, be, be a better listener, learn mm -hmm. to share credit, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, and those skills for someone who kind of puts themselves in the nice bucket, those skills come naturally. So if I was going to try mm -hmm. and develop myself as an executive, I wouldn't get very far by saying I should listen more, you know, or I should smile at people or create a warm feeling in my team or anything mm -hmm. like that. That mm -hmm. I kind of, uh, I, I, there's no, uh, there's no, there, there's nothing to be gained by kind of doubling down there. Um, but, but yeah, my self-assessment was because I was nice, because I looked young, because I present in kind of an enthusiastic way, people mm -hmm. didn't, gravitas is such a good word. People didn't mm -hmm. see me as a leader for some reason. And I think I must have lacked gravitas or I, I just came across as insubstantial, maybe only nice. You know, she's smart, mm -hmm. but um, that type of thing. And so I really thought about how do I develop counterweighting skills to that? And, you know, I, there are, there are, um, what should I say? There are very specific skills you can develop that help how you present yourself. So I did public speaking and I made sure to get myself invited to kind of executive level meetings and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but another thing you can do is simply accomplish things that, that kind of uh, give you credibility markers and make people think, oh, yeah, okay, she must know what she's doing. You know, it's, it's interesting. Like, you started this podcast and there are people listening to it, right? And that, that's something you can do to say, I'm, I'm a serious professional. I'm thinking about this. I'm a thought leader in the industry, right? Not mm -hmm. everyone can kind of 
organize themselves to do a podcast. I'm sure there are many more people thinking they'd like to do a podcast and actually do it, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And similarly, like uh, starting a company, (laughs) having that company Mm -hmm. last for a while, hiring people with good pedigrees that made people say, oh, that's a bigger company than I realized if, if, you know, (laughs) if you have room for that person. Um, Writing a book, uh, speaking at conferences, you know, if you you can Mm -hmm. kind of tote up these credibility markers, it can counterweight the nice stuff because Mm -hmm. people say she's nice, but she's impressive or she, and I'm not trying to say that about myself, but you know what I'm saying? She's nice, but she's formidable. She's nice, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. look at, look at what she's accomplished. And so for me, that was really the strategy is don't, (laughs) don't wait for someone else to perceive you differently. If that makes sense, go do stuff that is, you know, Steve Martin has a great book called uh, so good. They, you know, so good. They can't forget you. I think that's what it's called. Now I might've said it wrong, but so, you know, Mm -hmm. they can't ignore you. That's what it is. So Mm -hmm. so go be so good. They can't ignore you. Mm -hmm. Tone up those credibility Mm -hmm. markers. And then the nice thing is just a bonus that comes with it. Mm. Absolutely. I see that as being the full package, right? Like, someone yeah. who's got time in their life for others. Um, and yeah. um, they are absolutely kick-ass at, at what they do yeah. for a living. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the person you want to hang out with, right? Yeah. Isn't that the person you'd rather yeah. do business with? Um, absolutely. You know, given, given the choice, uh, those are the people we, we want to work with. Um, mm-hmm. But right, it's developing all sides of the package. Awesome. Kirsten, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm really glad um, that we did this today because um, these are topics that, that the old style of training um, and moving away from that is, is a topic that's just so close to my heart. And I'm, I'm so pleased um, that I had you here to, to have that conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's fun to discuss these topics. Mm-hmm. There's another book that I'd like to recommend called Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office by Lois P. Frankel. And in fact, I believe that uh, Kirsten has also read this in her time as well. Um, And it's particularly useful for those um, who are relatively fresh in their careers, which is the time at which I read it, um, as a good guidebook for gaining gravitas and establishing credibility. And, you know, just as a warning, um, obviously, Kirsten and I have talked about really valuing actually being a, a nice person um, as being um, a real positive. And what turned me off when I first heard about this book many years ago um, was, well, hang on a second. What, what are they saying? Nice girls don't get the corner office. Um, I want to be successful, but not if I have to compromise who I am and not at the expense of others. So if, if, that, if that's what it turns out this book is about, then I don't really want to hear it. But I opened the book anyway, um, and it transpired that the emphasis was not on nice. It was on girls. And the point there is that in the office, we want to come across as women. We want to come across as credible, reliable, capable, capable and competent leaders. So if you haven't read that book, it's an oldie but a goodie. And um, I certainly recommend it, especially for our um, less experienced folks out there who are really interested in getting a heads up in the office. Thanks everyone for your time and have a great rest of your week ahead. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.